Every year, Paige teams up with the Institute for Public Relations to hold a case study competition for students. It's one of the ways we work with academia to help cultivate future generations of communications leaders. We get dozens and sometimes even over a hundred entries, and the winners are chosen by a panel of some of the most prolific communicators in the world. This year's winning case study examined the controversial decision by Dick's Sporting Goods to discontinue the sale of guns in many of their stores. Dick's Sporting Goods says it's destroyed $5 million worth of assault rifles. It was just after the Sandy Hook attack that the AR-15 was pulled from the shelves. CEO Ed Stack says rather than return banned guns to the companies that make them, he'd rather turn them into scrap metal. And I said, you know what, if we really think these things should be off the street, then we need to destroy them. We thought we'd get a little bit of a backlash, but we didn't expect to get what we, what we got. In an earlier episode, we spoke with three students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, about the gun control movement they began following the horrific school shooting that took place there. Today, we're speaking with students from the University of Oregon, whose winning case study looked at the impact that movement had on an iconic American company. I'm Hannah Neuschwander, and I'm a student in the master's program in strategic communication at the School of Journalism at University of Oregon. I am Allison Morris. I'm also a first-year student in the Strategic Communications program at the University of Oregon. My name is Ray Zhao, an international student from southern China. This is my first year in Strategic Communication program, and um, also this is my sixth year in the state. Me, I'm Elliot Mizrahi, and this is the new CCO. So it turns out that Dix is the largest omni-channel sporting goods retailer company in the United States, including Golf Galaxy, Fieldstream, and the Dix Team Sports High Quality. One thing you'd find in many of those stores, along with shin guards and just about any bouncing object you can imagine, is fishing and hunting supplies, and that includes guns. Ed Stack, uh, the CEO of Dix, has always been a supporter of that Second Amendment, and he's uh, publicly stated that in the past. Um, part of the reason why he's supplied guns uh, to his stores for a really long time. Allison said that gun sales had been an uncontroversial part of Dick's business, but according to Hannah, that suddenly changed. After the horror in Parkland, Florida, Dick's Sporting Goods CEO Ed Stack says they found out the alleged gunman bought a shotgun last November at one of their stores. Though not a weapon used in the killings that day, enough was enough. We don't want to be a part of the story any longer. The company is no longer selling a So um, in February 2018, after the Parkland school shooting, uh, the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods, which is a large omni-channel retailer with something like 700 stores, came out and publicly made statements. When we looked at those kids, we talked amongst ourselves and said, if these kids can be brave enough to do this, then we should be brave enough to make us make a stand ourselves. He issued an open letter and went on morning news um, and sort of took a stand around the issue of gun rights um, in a very public way, which was a a pretty uncharacteristic move for this company, which is, um, you know, basically just a, a retail marketing store, mostly based in the suburbs. It's not really a brand that's known as a kind of values forward company in the in the same way as, for example, like a Patagonia or something like that. So it was it was pretty um, unusual, and it generated a ton of media attention. 
The company is no longer selling assault-style rifles or high-capacity magazines and will not sell any firearms to anyone under 21. It's a big In 2018, the original thing they did was they stopped selling guns to minors, so anyone under 21 could not purchase a gun anymore, and they pulled back on sales of um, effectively assault rifles, like automatic weapons. Then they went further a year later in March 2019 and pulled uh, gun sales entirely out of 125 of their stores. And it cost exporting goods dearly. It's a quarter of a billion dollars. Quarter of a billion dollars. Quarter of a billion. If an issue is as polarizing as gun rights, um, you're going to get punished, <laughs> but you're going to get rewarded too. In Page's CCO's Paysetter report, we describe the ways that companies are creating not just shareholder and customer value, but broader value for society as well. One of the increasingly common approaches to doing that is taking a stand on societal issues, often really controversial ones like immigration, gender equality, and yes, even guns. While Dix's decision was based at least in part on its convictions and its values, it was still a business decision, which is usually the case. Here's Hannah again. One of the kind of little tidbits that we did find um, was that very few gun buyers buy their guns from sporting general sporting goods stores. Most of them go to local stores. So uh, I think it was 6%. It has been declining over the last 10 years. And those sales aren't especially profitable. It's a really low margin part of their business. The, the fact is it probably was, you know, really just a pretty small percentage of the guns totally being bought in the U.S. is coming from Dick's. But removing guns from store shelves risked more than just losing sales. Critics like professional shooter and former police officer Diana Muller say Stack is wrong. It feels really anti-American to start creating public policy through corporate policy. We all know that the gun rights is one of the controversial polarization problems in American culture and American history. But the CEO of the Pittsburgh-based sporting goods chain is undeterred. I mean, if a businessman stands in a sensitive topic, it's a very brave behavior because you have no idea what impact it will bring to your business. It has always been sort of this big divide in the United States between those that are more interested in gun control or heavier gun controls versus um, those that feel a certain right towards own, uh, owning guns. Um, it's sort of for some a cultural identity to, to be able to own guns. There has been a lot of uh, agreement in that there should be stricter gun controls, especially when things come up with you know school shootings and, and children involved. But for some reason, when it gets down to the nitty gritty of it, it's hard for people to agree. The company is no longer selling assault-style rifles or high-capacity magazines. There's been a ton of research done on gun control, right? Like, it's such a topic. And specific policy proposals like background checks, there's a really high level of agreement across political ideologies that we should have stricter background checks. I think there was a Gallup poll in 2017 that said 96% of Americans agreed that stricter background checks was good. But um, because the whole issue has evolved into, like Allison was saying, a sort of cultural identity issue, um, it creates this kind of friction in the political process where a, a policy, a particular policy issue that 
has, even though it has really, really high agreement across ideologies, it gets like stuck inside that grind, that friction and that grindstone. And um, since since Sandy Hook, no gun control measures, national gun control measures have passed, even though I think, you know, the vast majority of Americans were completely appalled. As time went by, Americans began to feel the impact of living in a reality where school shootings are possible. We began living the reality of extra school safety procedures and active shooter drills. And that reality has started affecting our kids. That was certainly the case for Hannah. The second thing I was going to add is that um, sort of over the course of this time span, I became a parent. Um, and I now have my oldest is in kindergarten now in a public school here. and. One of the things that happened after Sandy Hook was that every school in America had to put in place active shooter trainings. And so this thing that went from being like, I mean, a polarizing issue, but like kind of, it was just people on the fringes, like yelling at each other, became a thing that actually impacted the daily lives of everyone who has children. Because now like your kids go to school, they do their earthquake training and their whatever training, but they also do what they call in kindergarten monster training. Um, and it's, it's so sad. Like the day my daughter came home and told us that she had had to do this, the first time she did it was in preschool. I was sobbing because like, I, <laughs> like why is that our reality? Ed Stack put out a business memoir last year and he writes about um, learning the news about Parkland and just the sort of despondency that he felt um, and having a realization that somebody needed to do something to stop this kind of <laughs> train speeding down the tracks, this this school shooting train that seems that seemed never to slow down and, and realizing that that somebody needed to be him, that he had actually a role to play in this as um, as the leader of a company that sells guns. He describes also in the memoir this kind of sickening process that would happen every time there was a school shooting. They would go into their registries and have to look up, did the shooter in this particular shooting buy their gun from Dick's and do we need to like proactively prepare for backlash? We actually sold the shooter a shotgun in, uh, in November of last year. And we looked at that and found out that we did this. We had a pit in our stomach. Despite their CEO's public support for guns, Allison says Dix has actually pulled guns from their shelves in the past. Back in 1988, they pulled some handguns after there was some theft with some teens where some ended up um, getting killed. They had pulled guns um, in 2001 in September. There was the terrorist attacks and they were concerned there. Ed Stack even made the point of, you know, after that attack, you know, his wife called him and said she was going to go out and try to buy a gun at Dick's because she was nervous. And so he had this realization that a lot of other Americans were probably going to go do the same thing. Both of those instances took place in a world without social media. In 2012, Dick's pulled guns for a third time. And that time, they definitely felt the burn. Bad guys are going to get guns whether Dick sells them to them or not. What's an AR-15 for? It's for, to kill people. And we've had enough of that. In 2012, after Sandy Hook, they, without announcing anything, without letting anyone know, including employees, they pulled back on um, automatic rifle sales in all 700 stores. 
what was different from that compared to earlier kind of pullbacks on sales is that um, the the world had evolved and social media had arrived and they got punished on social media um, for that decision. And so when they were having these conversations and taking the decision to do something similar after Parkland, they learned their lesson that they needed to be proactive with their stakeholder communities, that they needed to come out front and explain themselves so that they could at least, if not control the narrative, at least set the frame. I think in Parkland, it was different in the fact that after that incident, the students themselves started taking action. Um, and because Dix is sort of this youth sports company, they saw youth, their stakeholder, taking action and they felt like they could support them um, or take that opportunity to support them and try to make a change. There was a relatively small huddle between senior leadership to kind of figure out, is this the direction we're gonna go? There's definitely gonna be risk for us if we do. Let's try to at least get our arms wrapped around what the scope of that risk is. According to Ray, Dix had a sense of what to expect sales-wise. They had tried to pull back gun sales in 10 stores before and replaced them with other high-margin products and some products that meet local consumer groups as well and found that the revenue did not decrease compared to other stores. And moreover, um, Dix did not regard this action as a as a threat, but an, as an opportunity to replace guns with female products that are more attractive to consumers. Hannah again. We're going to take this space that wasn't generating a lot of margin, and we're going to figure out how to use that space to make us a stronger company. We're going to get smarter about how we make decisions about what products we're going to sell on this footprint because it turns out we can actually do way better than we were doing with with the gun business. So about two weeks after Parkland, um, Stack issued an open letter. Um, I, it was shared first with employees within the company. Uh, they have about 40,000 employees. Um, and then later that morning um, publicly on their Facebook page. And then he also arranged to appear on two different morning shows and on George Stephanopoulos' show. He's here to explain why. Good morning, Ed. Thanks. This is a dramatic move. Tell us why you're taking it. Well, thanks for, for having me today to talk about this. And uh... The point of the letter was to communicate the actions they were taking, which was to immediately stop selling guns to minors um, under 21, as well as to pull back on the sale of modern assault rifles or AR-15s. Interestingly, he also addressed part of the letter directly to the Parkland students. To, uh, as we looked at what happened down in Parkland, and uh, we, were, we, we were so disturbed and saddened by what happened, we felt we really needed to do something. And uh, so we've uh, decided not to sell these assault weapons any longer in any of our stores. We have tremendous respect and admiration for the students organizing and making their voices heard regarding gun violence in schools and elsewhere in our country. We have heard you. The nation has heard you. So yeah, no chance you're going to reverse this. Never. Are you ready for the backlash? We are. Their CFO modeled what he thought would be the financial impact, and I, I believe the number he came up with was something like two hundred fifty or three hundred million dollar hit in sales. And at first, sales did decline, but. Within six months, sales had started climbing, and as Ray alluded to, um, they um, they did a really, really good job of um, 
thinking about this not just as a as a value stance, but also as an opportunity to um, take advantage within the business of getting smarter about how to use the footprint um, that had been devoted to guns to other higher margin uh, products. So the implications to the business, it sounds like, were fairly limited, not a huge part of their sales, declining over a number of years. And in markets where they did remove guns, they were able to replace them with higher margin products that proved more commercially viable anyway. Um, But there's a reputational element to this as well. This idea that if you do step out on a controversial issue, there will be backlash and boycotts and the like. Um, What did that end up looking like for the company in the days after the decision? And and what are some of the ways that they tried to prepare for that? They knew there was going to be backlash. They were expecting that, especially after the Sandy Hook um, pull of guns. So they they were ready for it. I think what they did differently was send out that open letter, do a lot of the public um, interviews, just sort of setting that narrative frame as to why, so that at least if their customers or stakeholders maybe didn't agree, they would have a better understanding as to why they were making those choices. As a result of a lot of this, uh, they actually gained a lot of new customers, people that didn't shop at Dick's initially, but because they backed the stance that they were coming from, um, there was a lot of posts in social media of, I've never shopped there, but I'm going to start shopping there because I believe what they're doing. Hannah, I think you're one of those people. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I am totally a convert. I'm a Dick's, I'm a Dick's convert. <laughs> so... The company paid attention to social media to get a sense for what the reaction was. I'm curious what what that seemed to be like in terms of negative and positive, and also with employees. I mean, they have forty thousand employees, so that's a that's a pretty sizable um, stakeholder group. And so they made sure that they communicated first with their employees. Um, they did expect that there would be some reaction from some employees, um, and uh, he they later reported that sixty two employees had quit over the decision that they didn't want to work for Dix anymore. Um, one or two of them ended up on conservative news media shows expressing their. Um, disappointment in the company for taking the stance, but it's interesting because even even that there's a there's video footage of um, one of these folks named uh, Griffin McCuller. You know the the sort of like headline is you know Dick's irate Dick's employee quits over position on gun stance. You said that uh, you find them morally and constitutionally wrong, and you refuse to be part of a corporation with these liberal policies. Uh, how did that go over, say, with your immediate supervisors? Um, I mean, I'm sure they weren't happy as I was leaving the store. I, I think I was doing pretty well at Dick's Sporting Goods. Um, however, they understood. Um, they, uh, they they were great great managers and great uh, other employees there. Um, mm-hmm. But the just those corporate policies, I couldn't I couldn't handle it anymore with that. And then you listen to the the interview, and um, you know it's, he's very polite about it. He's very like, yeah, I just basically don't agree. So it seemed kind of hypocritical to you, and not entirely fair. Yes, ma'am. Um, how did this? How did this go down, so to speak? In other words, um, if you look today, that letter is still there, and there's 425,000 comments on that Facebook post. 
there was a, a group of researchers that did a, a Twitter analysis after the fact just to see what the sentiment was. And so they looked at 10,000 tweets in the, I think, five days following the announcement. And they found that about 70% of the tweets expressed gratitude or positive sentiment. Um, I think neutral was like 15% and negative was about 15%. So um, certainly there was negative sentiment and negative reaction and anger and frustration. Um, but on the whole, it was um, seen as a, as a positive move for the company. It seems like the company had actually been evolving towards more of a values-driven company in general. Uh, what, what, what was the history of that progression? What, why do you think that was the case and in what ways did that manifest? Yeah, so I think they would argue that they, they've always had values. Um, they've always been values-driven, but maybe just not vocalizing that. Uh, to their their customers um, and outwardly. I think that because the Parkland shooting, like we've mentioned before, has become sort of this youth-led uh, movement to make change and and they're sort of bringing that around to tie in with their company that, you know, they support youth sports, so they're, you know, inevitably supporting youth. One of the things that they, they've done and they've really pushed further was sort of their Sports Matter initiative, um, supporting youth sports, especially in you know places where they don't have as much funding um, to support youth that want to be participating, um, providing equipment, that sort of thing. Then uh, they connected further with the, this issue about a gun problem because youth are the future of the country, of the world. So they want to protect the youth and they want to encourage people to go out and to play play in the playground and have fun, but not afraid of the gun threat. So I think that which is really match their um, company value orientation. They're walking on this tightrope, right? It, it, this is a really polarizing issue and they are not a company who relies on their brand being tied to specific values to drive sales. Um, and so they needed to find a way to explain this stance and this, this sort of almost activism um, that, that the leadership of Dix was undertaking um, in a way that minimized the impact on their business that as much as possible took advantage of the opportunity that it that it did open for them to engage new customers and um, improve the you know margins in the in the space that was being freed up but they also were not trying to pivot the whole brand to suddenly be a totally different kind of company what's really savvy about the release of the business memoir which was released in 2019 is it gave them an opportunity to kind of go back over the whole history, the whole trajectory of Dix as this family-owned business and connect these current actions and activities and, and values back and weave them back through um, the story of the entire company. When you get to the end of the book and the chapter about the stance on gun rights, by the end, it feels like they took an inevitable decision, right? That this was always what was going to happen when clearly that's not the case. Um, but they did a really effective job in internally, but then also externally of um, 
of telling of, of revising the story of the company um, in a way that made this feel kind of inevitable. The case study competition also asked students to view their story through the lens of the page principles. If you haven't heard of those, they're a set of seven tenets by which we believe public relations should be practiced. Though they're named after Arthur W. Page, they weren't written by him. They were codified later on by his disciples based on his lifetime of work and writings. One that sort of stands out to me is manage for tomorrow, um, especially taking sort of all these preemptive steps to you know, analyze the, the backlash, sort of evaluate how it was going to impact the company financially and the business, um, and just sort of preparing for that. I think the other um, principle that comes to mind is conduct public relations as if the whole company depends on it. You know, this is this is a company that really sees itself through the lens of the kind of like classic American business story, you know, started in 1948, built into this big national brand. Um, a lot of those kind of, you know, sports metaphors are everywhere. If you look at the, how the company talks about itself, obviously. Um, but, you know, what I, my sense of the company's leadership is that they understood that taking a stance on this issue was had the potential to destabilize the company and that the company isn't just about, you know, generating revenue for its shareholders, that it is, and they take that responsibility seriously, but they also provide livelihoods for 40,000 people. And that if they didn't manage this well, the impact on that would be really significant for every, all of those key stakeholders. For me, I think the lesson is that, um, you know, if you're if you're going to take a difficult stand, if you're going to wade out into treacherous waters, um, do it. It's it, it is it is a doable thing, and and there are, there will be risks, but there there will almost certainly be benefits. But if you're going to do it, you need in your communications to build a bridge for people between the action that you're taking and the story of the company. Um, it, what Dix did so effectively, you know, their their common purpose, their, um, well, yeah, they call it their common purpose, is to create confidence and excitement by personally equipping all athletes to achieve their dreams. That has absolutely nothing to do with guns. <laughs> and so what, th- what they had to do was build a bridge from um, the stance they were going to take on gun rights and that common purpose. And the bridge that they built was youth, right? The importance of youth to the history of the company, the importance of youth, obviously, to the future of the country. Um, and and so they, they were able to do that in a really, I think, smart way. Um, as, a, as a communications professional, it was really fun to kind of like dig underneath, like, how did they do this? Um, and to see that it was done in such a, in such a smart way. I'd like to take a moment to thank our podcast sponsors for this year, Rivet, which is our podcast producer, and Crisp Thinking. Crisp Thinking uses AI and human intelligence to protect global brands from the weaponization of communication and the spread of misinformation. You can find out more at crispthinking.com. You can find out more about Rivet at rivet360.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of The New CCO, be sure to check out our latest episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think so that we can keep making this podcast more interesting and valuable to you. To find out more about what's happening at PAGE, please visit us at page.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on The New CCO.